All right, we have a a huge, not I was going to say big, we have a huge podcast this week because sometimes when it rains, it really pours. So I've been trying to get uh, Mike Love of the Beach Boys to be a guest on this program for a while. And it's one of those things where he put out a book, you know, just about a year ago. And so I was going real hard and we had a few dates set and they, you know, it just kept changing and changing and changing. And then I saw they were coming back to New York and uh, to New Jersey. And I thought, okay, this is another opportunity. So I another barrage of emails and again, a bunch of dates set, you know, you can talk to Mike at this time, you know, and it just kept changing. And I'd kind of given up hope, and then I sent one last email, uh, and this is right before the gig. So uh, I figured this is my last opportunity. And they said, you know, okay, how about this? And then they changed it again. They finally said tomorrow, 1130. So this was actually pre-recorded, although we are pretending it is Saturday. It was a few days before that. And uh, it, very interesting what happened on Facebook. Uh, I announced that I'd be interviewing Mike Love and, you know, on the show, I'll be honest about it. On my radio show, I've always, you know, I love the Beach Boys, my favorite band. Maybe I like them even more than the Beatles. I don't know. So can we really quantify such things as love? But suffice to say, I listen to them way more than the Beatles. That's that's a true, true data there, not fake news. So I love this band, and... And I, you know, and I certainly Brian Wilson is, a, you know, a literal genius, right? Uh, and Mike Love is a has contributed to a lot of amazing. So, so, so back to Facebook, there was this sort of outpouring of people, a few, a vocal minority who had to denigrate Mike, including questioning whether or not he actually had involvement in anything creative. Some people said stuff like Mike Love. Hold on, I'm looking for the piece of paper. I wrote this down. Somebody actually said, Mike doesn't know jack shit about the making of amazing music. Uh, how, he doesn't know anything about it? I mean, doesn't even, even if you don't think he's talented, which I certainly do, don't you think just being in the room means he knows a little something about what happened and the making of, uh, literally the making of amazing music? Uh, so it's just factually wrong. And and that's kind of what, what I thought was interesting. A lot of people who who were attacking Mike Love were doing it in factually incorrect ways, right? You want to say Mike's behavior you don't like. We can all find examples of that, and so can Mike. Uh, but I just thought it was interesting that that folks who didn't want to look at the facts had these presumptions, and I'm not sure what they were based on. I looked it up, and I think there were 27 Beach Boy hits that were top 40 hits that weren't cover songs, and of those I think it was 14 were co-written by Mike Love. Uh, You know, his voice, you can have a problem with it, but there is something about the way he sings those big hit songs that's really, really effective. His sort of high thing really cuts through well. You know, he, he doesn't sing like Carl, he doesn't sing like Brian in his prime but he's you know he's one of those guys who just has a great voice for radio singles and he co-wrote some of the you know best pop songs in the history of mankind uh some people can debate that i'm not sure how even um brian wilson calls him his favorite collaborator and the best lyricist he ever worked with so people who love brian simultaneously somehow think it's okay to question whether or not Mike Love co-wrote any of the songs. People literally questioning that on on this Facebook post. Whether or not he co-wrote any songs, even though Brian says he did, there's it's just I don't I, I'm not exactly sure I understand where this comes from and it's I don't know, it's just kind of silly and disappointing. Yes, over the years I have pointed out Mike's uh, less than perfect behavior, but he does it as well. Uh, I, I so recommend everyone read Mike Love's book and recommend that they read Brian's book. They both put out books just about the same time, just a few months ago, and I went to the library and took them both out of the library and read them both really quickly. Uh, I could not put them down. They made a great double read, and they're both they're both very you know they're both pretty balanced. That's what was such a surprise. Mike goes out of his way to make himself look bad sometimes, but he defends himself and he does it in a, sort of a gentle way. And uh, and and he goes out of his way throughout the book to praise Brian Wilson and his talents. And and Brian does the same thing in his book. So uh, 
and I, so anyways, I was very pleased to talk to Mike Love. What you don't hear here is about, tw- uh, we, it was set to be a half hour, and about 28 minutes in, Mike said, listen, I got to go to sound check, uh, so can you please wrap this up? And so we wrapped it up. So I really only got to, you know, 80% of, of what, I, not 80, 70, 65, 63.5% of what I wanted to talk to Mike about. Uh, there was just a lot of... You know, there's a lot to talk to him about. And, you know, honestly, he didn't, you know, he was good about uh, kind of def- not deflecting, but putting the answers where he wanted them, no matter what the questions were, which is what I was kind of expecting and which is what seasoned interviewers do. But nevertheless, I think this interview really gives a picture of what Mike Love is about as a human being. And I think in some ways that's just the point of any interview. Uh, I will point out that if you are a fan of the Beach Boys, on my on the website of wfmu.org slash Michael, there are interviews with Ron Altbeck, who played with the Beach Boys, with Carly Munoz, who played with the Beach Boys, with Blondie Chapman, uh, who still plays with Brian. Now, a couple of times David Marks was on the show. Uh, I've had many authors who have written great books about the Beach Boys. They are all up there. And... I interviewed Brian Wilson. That's up there, too. So if you're interested in that, uh, check out all those archives. But before we hear from Mike Love, we're going to hear John Perrin of America's literally my second favorite American band of all time, NRBQ. John Perrin is the newest member of the band. Uh, they are playing at WFMU's venue. And I thought, eh, it'd just be a good opportunity to talk to John and promo this gig. So you're going to hear this one first. It's a little bit shorter. And likewise, if you're a fan of NRBQ, check the archives at WFMU.org slash Michael. Because I've talked to Joey Spompanato. He's been on the show a couple of times. Johnny's been on the show a couple of times. And Terry Adams has been on the show a couple of times. Scott has been on the show a couple of times. And Casey has been on the show. So... If you're a fan, check those archives uh, for all of those interviews. We're going to start off with John Perrin from NRBQ, and then we're going to hear from Mike Love. Uh, Stay tuned. Some great interviews coming up. Those uh, listings are available at WFMU.org slash Michael. Always interested to hear your feedback. I'm at Michael S at WFMU.org. Here's John and then Mike Love. All right, there's NRBQ and John Perrin, the drummer of NRBQ. Welcome to WFMU, and good morning. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You guys are playing at uh, our venue, Monty Hall, tomorrow at 7 o'clock, and uh, I want everybody to come, but are you, are you excited? Are you, uh, I mean, you're the newest guy to join the band you are. It's not quite like Spinal Tap, but you're, I think, the fourth drummer <laughs> in 50-something years. Uh, to, so when did you join? I joined... The forty ninth year of NRBQ. <laughs> so this band is older than you, significantly. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was born in I was born in ninety two, so significant amount <laughs> older than me. So do the math. Yeah. So I mean, were you aware of this band? Was was this band on your radar? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, my my dad played bass ever since I was a kid and. He was a radio DJ in where'd he go? Valpo, Indiana. And so he'd he'd known in the band since late seventies, early eighties. He'd he'd been a fan for ages and so I I grew up with it. Yeah, I grew up especially for a kid that grew up in the nineties, I grew up listening to some odd stuff. Bands like NRQ or Young Fresh Fellows, Bonzo Dog Band and uh They Might Be Giants, stuff like that. I mean, as well as as well as everything else. Was your dad like your source for music, sort of? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he you know he started making me mixtapes when I was three months old, <laughs> and and it was weird because especially from that age, it can kind of screw your brain up just because you know you're you you have no concept of of media, and I, I mean screw your brain up in the best way possible, but uh, you have no concept of media, so. You know, a Beatles song on that mixtape is, you know, I wouldn't say equal to like a, you know, Young Fresh Fellows song, of course, but I mean, you have no sense that one of those bands is a lot bigger than the other. 
Right. I I completely understand this. I've got a 12-year-old daughter, and I try to, like, give her space to, like, her own thing. But, you know, she's constantly barraged by the music I'm playing. And, and but, but that's what you just said is sort of beautiful because she does not come at it with any prejudging. You know, she just listens yeah. and reacts. So if it's a Beatles song or a Young Fresh Fellow song, she just reacts without any of the baggage, which is sort of beautiful. Yeah, yeah, completely. Well, one of the things I noticed just doing a quick kind of Google search on you is that you seem to have been in many, many, many bands. Like, not exactly, <laughs> you know, like you're a very busy guy with a lot of music in you. Uh, have you had to sort of put a, yeah. a stop to that to to kind of put your energy towards NRBQ? Yeah, you know, it's 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 kind of weird, actually. The, there's always a lot of... Um, it seems like there's always a lot of coincidences in this band and you know, strange things happen and things happen for a reason, but I've noticed a spike in that <laughs> since joining this band. And uh, it was weird because I've been growing up because of my dad and because of, you know, all the music he introduced to me. I mean, it really like I've, I've tried finding a bunch of the mixtapes and writing down the track listing and he would go from, you know, Tommy Rowe, Sweet Pea to like a social distortion song. <laughs> so because of that, I wanted to play all of these different types of music and, and not even like really realizing it because at the time I didn't realize that you could be in one band and play everything. I mean, even things like jazz that I had never really thought to play. But uh, yeah, so growing up, I always had all of these different bands just do different things. You know, I'd I hadn't really thought, oh, you know, if you find the right musicians. And then I met Scott, and I didn't really realize you could just play everything until, you know, I met him and Casey and Terry. Scott had played with you, and then when the the drum chair came open, when Conrad decided to kind of stay home and take care of the kids and or whatever, uh, did they ask you right away, or did you kind of have to audition, or 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 what happened? You know, I had I hadn't seen the lineup of Scott and Casey, so I was always kind of asking them, like, you know, well, what do you play? Is there anything that you don't play? And and so I kind of began asking them if we could play specific things, just that, you know, it shows in Chicago because I wanted to play them. You know, do you guys do Dr. Howard or do you do Dummy? I mean, I'd, it happened pretty organically. They, they had me come out to the studio and just kind of play for a night and it, it was pretty intimidating, though, <laughs> for me. Yeah, well, that's what I was wondering. Was it scary? Was it uh, was meeting Terry a big deal? Well, you know, Terry was great, just on the basis of, you know, I think one of the first conversations I had with him was just like, you know, what records have you been buying? I collect records. Pretty uh, nuts about it. <laughs> so I think I had gone to a local store that day, and so we just talked about what I bought. But it, it was more like... A, just the idea of doing it, like the music, you know, was maybe a little bit intimidating just to be in that role. I mean, when I came in and came in to play a little bit, we got there a little bit early just so I could set up the drums and, you know, just make sure everything was ready for me to be behind the kit. I walked in and I hadn't, I don't know if Scott had told me this previously, but I didn't know that, that Tommy's drums are still being played. And then that was the other thing too, is, you know, in Chicago I was using, much smaller drums. Tom's drums are large. <laughs> <laughs> and you're you're not a huge guy. Yeah, I'm I'm not. <laughs> you know, I could sit inside a 24-inch bass drum. There's a thing with NRBQ where people say, well, people who don't know say, well, what's it like, you know? And I and I don't ex- I can go on for an hour, but I'm not sure I exactly nail it. What do you say to people who don't know who say what is this band like? It's weird, especially because not a lot of people my age or friends my age were really hip to it. I kind of, I'll play it for them or, you know, get them a record. Especially before I joined, it was definitely one of those bands where I'm constantly out record shopping. And if I would find anything, you know, cheap and I had some extra cash, I would buy it and give it to somebody, you know, buy somebody a copy of Yankee Stadium and thrusted upon them. So the, the Johnny Appleseed <laughs> approach is sort of the only way to, to really let people know. I sort of agree. You just kind of have to 
listen and go go see the band especially. Uh, I want to remind everybody, John Perrin is our guest, the drummer of NRBQ, who's playing tomorrow at uh, Monty Hall right here in Jersey City, New Jersey. So we're, tell me where you guys have traveled since you've joined the band and, and uh, what you've loved. Yeah, we've been kind of all over the U.S. Uh, we just went out to California for the first time, well, since I've been in the band, of course, but favorite part, I think the last trip, just because of all the, you know, being able to do 16 shows and every other trip we had done had been, you know, maybe four or five. I think one of the, one of the trips to do with little straight jackets might've been nine or 10, which was good. But, uh, you know, even just this band as a concept was fairly new to me. Just the fact that we're always going to play different things and nothing is going to be the same two nights in a row. <clears throat> so because of that, like whenever we get together, I want to play as much as possible. I mean, there there wasn't a single minute of those 16 or 17 shows that I wasn't having the best time of my life. <laughs> well, that's so wonderful so. <laughs> to hear that. I mean, it's great to hear that. And I should point out that it, you don't just play drums. Every time I've seen you with the band, uh, you get up from behind <laughs> the drum set and uh, have an opportunity to do something else besides play the drums. Yeah. Right? Which is fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, but just the fact that this music can allow you to be so free is pretty incredible especially coming from a background of you know playing well just with set lists alone it's kind of stifling in that that area but because nrpq doesn't use set lists so for you this is like you there's no going back yeah yeah yeah, it it, it's kind of ruined me (laughs) (laughs) Uh, are there some songs that you really look forward to when uh some song you just love to play the drums to um weird i you know i love everything completely I, you know there's some calls that really feel right you know that's something i never really experienced too is the more you play with a uh, certain people in an environment like that where songs are just being called it's like you start to get on the, the same wavelength as people i've never really experienced that before I can't wait to see you guys tomorrow, and uh, and like you said, it's always something different. And I always recommend this band. I mean, this sounds kind of dumb, but is I mean it. Uh, just anyone who likes music, you know, if you like music, it's very hard not to like this band because they're very musical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's always something to break down the door. Me and Scott have talked about it a bunch. Like, what what is the the album that gives somebody to hear for the first time? I'm always kind of into that. I mean, there's always something to break down the door. Yeah, well, there's so, I mean, you know, 50 plus years and there's just, there's so much, uh, so much stuff. Is there like a secret? Is there something that, uh, that when you walked in that first day that Terry looked at you and said, okay, do this, don't do that, or, you know? Um, not, not really. I mean, it was, it was pretty intense. I'm, I'm sure, you know, Scott has told a similar story of you know the first time the first time we ever got together <laughs> me and Scott and Casey played a little bit before before Terry arrived maybe like only you know 15 minutes or something like that but once Terry got there i think we played for we played for 4 hours that night yeah. you know arrangements can change there could be specific things needed here and there but he didn't say play harder play softer uh, you know <laughs> Always harder. <laughs> Terry likes that really hard thing. I guess that's why those huge drums, you know, you can whack them. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because all, all my drum sets back home, I, I always played with vintage drums, which are usually fairly light. And so, if, you know, if a bass drum slides forward while you're playing it, you can kind of one-handed, you know, grab it by its rim and pull it back. That started happening at a Q show last year. And, uh... I think like a lot of the drums that I have have three plies of wood. Tom's drums have ten. <laughs> They're like really thick maple. So the bass drum slid forward. I tried grabbing it, and it actually ripped part of my finger. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and you, so you get you got a hernia. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it, it's weird. I, you know, there there's a certain type of playing that I get taken into whenever whenever we play together. The whole thing is just so loud. <laughs> well, it's a, it's it's a really amazing band. I mean, the the four guys, the chemistry is is pretty incredible. And you guys, like you said, you really can play anything. And you said it's fun. And 
that's super obvious watching you and everybody on stage, but you especially, you're just, you seem to be in heaven uh, the whole time. Uh, you know, Mike Love is going to be on the program later today. You have any, uh, any, oh, yeah. any thoughts about him? Any questions for him? Any, any word for Mike Love? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, I like what he did on Friends. <laughs> Uh yeah, the the whole album is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. When it, they are the the other, they I really ask him if he ask him if he, ask him if he plays any songs from Friends. <laughs> I, I think he must. Uh, yeah, I mean, NRBQ and the Beach Boys are definitely my two favorite American bands of all time. So, what other bands do you love? What other drummers do you love? It's weird. It, it kind of goes back to my my dad's taste. I always really really loved. Uh, a band from Chicago called Material Issue. So uh, it, it's weird, too, because since I joined NRBQ, I get to meet a lot of those guys now. I mean, even Material Issue and Replacements are a big one, too. In in 91, um, the Replacements last show was actually with NRBQ and, and Material Issue. So it's kind of a weird big family of all this music that I love and you know, not many other people understand. But... <laughs> But, uh, yeah, Material Issue's great. There was another local Chicago band I grew up watching all the time called the Elvis Brothers with uh, Brad Elvis playing drums, and he's he's always one of my favorites. You know, of course, Staley and Ardolino, and, uh, you know, they're they're two such very different drummers. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, th- I brought this up once with Terry, and he didn't really, he didn't seem to, to, to go for that theory but yeah i find that like tom is uh, tom steely he has this very like i don't know tight thing it's almost impossible to recreate it's like it's little i don't know in, in this hand movements and everything and tom it has this much huger hand movements and his right hand is almost like disconnected from the rest of his body it's it's weird um i mean especially you know anytime you're trying to analyze how a guy plays honey hush <laughs> it's like <laughs> I mean, that that's kind of the great thing about it, though. Uh, whenever I kind of get intimidated about, you know, the, the music and stuff like that, it's just like, there, you know, there's two live versions of both those guys playing Honey Hush, and they're both amazing, even though they're obviously doing a little bit of different of approach just because they're, you know, they're them. So realizing that kind of takes me, takes me out of trying to play exactly like someone else. I know Scott's mentioned, you know, he, the first few times he ever did this, he was, you know, kind of freaked out that Joey's voice wasn't coming out of his mouth. So it's it's something kind of like that. I yeah, think. but luckily I think for you, the NRBQ fans are, you have to be open-minded to kind of be an NRBQ fan. So they're, I think they're open to a new guy. I hope so. I hope nobody hates me. <laughs> <laughs> Bring back Pete Best, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, John, it's been uh, interesting talking to you, and uh, I hope folks come down. Uh, Monty Hall, I don't think you've ever been there, but it's a real great place to see a show, real intimate and uh, fun, and it's just, you are you are next, you know, you are, there's no separation between you and the audience, so uh, it's, it's going to be a great show. It's tomorrow at uh, Monty Hall, the world's uh, greatest American band, NRBQ. Do you, so you said... Uh, do you have like a favorite NRBQ album? You were talking about maybe trying to find the one to give somebody to turn them on. What album would that be? You know, I fluctuate so much, but the I think the first actual physical record, like physical bought with my own money LP, I had in the band was Yankee. So it, for me, it's probably between Yankee and and all hopped up as a fan. Well, they're both they're both um, perfect. Yeah, they're both amazing, amazing records. Yeah. And that's you know, that is very hard to pick. <laughs> I also really love you know, Dummy and Brass Tacks, and I don't know there. There's not really anything I don't like in the catalog. So. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to the to, I don't have to worry to, about the, that. to whatever comes next because I think on the on the box set that came out last year, I think you play on. I think there's only one track featuring you because you had just joined. So I'm looking forward to whatever's next featuring you know a, a whole album of uh, of John Perrin on drums or whatever. All right, I'm going to play something from one of those uh, two albums now. Uh, you got a I don't know or a track you want me to play? Is something your favorite? Mm. 
Let me think. Do do it feels good. All right. It's an absolute number one hit song. Uh, thank you, John, and we'll see you tomorrow right here at uh, at uh, Monty Hall. All right. Thank you so much, Michael. All right, Mike Love, one of yeah. my, my dream guests, finally makes it to the program. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. Uh, a lot to talk about in the Beach Boys world. First of all, your book, Good Vibrations, My Life as a Beach Boy, has come out recently, and I just read it, and a lot to talk about. A uh, new CD called 1967, Sunshine Tomorrow, just came out. A lot to talk about. Plus, you're playing tonight uh, right here in New Jersey, and then a couple more gigs in New Jersey next week. We're going to talk about all of this. Let's start off with this CD. It's super interesting. Uh, 67 tracks. Most of it is from this wild, honey, smiley, smile era uh how how much are you involved in putting these these things together do you have final say do you go and listen to a bunch of stuff well you know i have in the past and um this one was developed pretty much by people who were really into our 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 archival stuff you know um and so that that came about like that but back in the 70s, I came up with this idea to, to name an album Endless Summer. And then um, decades later, Sounds of Summer, 30 songs on one CD. So I do get involved in the sequencing of, of the songs in many cases and have done stuff like that. So, you know, because what I come from many, many years of sequencing songs for concerts, and we have found, or I have found that one song will support the next song, whether it be the conceptual part of the song or the, or the lead singer or the tempo, um, you know, whether it's a ballad or whether it's a mid-tempo or whether it's up-tempo. So through that trial and error of how each song supports the next song, I've come up with a philosophy of how to put together a set list, and that is sort of spilled over into sequencing an album. And so that's the part I like to play. Yeah, there's definitely art uh, and art to putting together a good set list and a good running order on the CD. Uh, the songs on here on this new set, uh, very interesting time and one of my favorite periods of the Beach Boys because it's sort of post pet sounds, post good vibrations, post you know attempt at. Uh, Smile, and then you have these four albums, 2020, Friends, Smiley, Smiley, and Wild Honey, that are just very much band efforts, a lot of collaboration, really mellow. I just love that period of time. Uh, is that what it was like uh, to be there? Was it this kind of mellow, let's just make some music in Brian's house, or what was the vibe going on? Yeah, it was very mellow because, uh, you know, um, like the song wind chimes. I mean, there's nothing more mellow than that, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so it was, but I really enjoyed, you know, obviously good vibrations was a tremendous collaboration between myself and, and Brian. He, he did an amazing job on crafting the track and I wrote the words and the music that I'm picking up good vibrations. And my cousin Carl sang the, the lead on the verses beautifully uh, I did the chorus, and, and we all did the harmonies together, so that was a, a tremendous thing, good vibrations. But then um, there was a period where Brian uh, was riding with Van Dyke Parks, this, this fellow who was very gifted, but, you know, they, they went and did the smile thing, but then Brian, you know, shelved the smile album, and it didn't come out for many years after, until many years after, and uh, he put it away. So what happened was we went and did Smiley Smile, which was very mellifluous, very light and airy and, and, and in some cases nonsensical, but it was, it was done at Brian's home, which was really neat because there was the, 
the uh, it was the atmosphere there. We had a studio and it was converted into a, a living room. It was converted into a studio, and it was really nice. And I I remember walking out to the kitchen to make some honey, uh, make some tea. I mean, and looking up in the cupboard and seeing this jar of of it said wild honey. I said, well, that'd be a great title for for a song. So I wrote the words while the guys were doing the track in the studio. And that's how, that's pretty organic. Uh, it's the way that the, the song Wild Honey came, up, came about. And there's a song called Darlin' on that album, which I wrote the words to that. And, and uh, Brian and the, the other guys did the track for it. And then I uh, cooperated, you know, co-wrote Aren't You Glad with, with them. So I got a chance to work in Brian's house with Brian and I hadn't done that since Good Vibrations in 1966. And so, so it was a, for me, it was a really neat thing to be able to get back and write together again for that album. Yeah. Like you said, there is this very mellow and together vibe there. And I, I, I can't imagine what it is like to try to, to follow up Good Vibrations, which is in a lot of ways the greatest single ever. I mean, it's so, I mean, I think we take it for granted now, it's Good Vibrations, but to hear it the first time is mind-blowing. I mean, I can't imagine uh, sitting there. So so to follow mm-hmm. it up with these kind of mellower records is kind of, makes logical sense, because there's no way you could make a second Good Vibrations, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it was... Extremely unique and avant-garde for its time, and I think it probably still is avant-garde. And you know, on the strength of Good Vibrations, the Beach Boys were voted the number one group in Great Britain, number two being the Beatles, and number four the Rolling Stones. Uh, so uh, it was a remarkable record and recognized worldwide for what it was, which is groundbreaking and unique. And and I don't think there's ever been anything quite like it. So I was really uh, happy to have collaborated with Brian on on that song, you know, Um, and to see that it gained such notoriety and such, you know, such, uh, what do you call it, level of success. It's uh, incredible. Yeah, one of the great things about the Beach Boys catalog for me is that there are these constant innovations in production in writing in performance they you know there's all this innovation as you follow the the band's progress but there's also hits sprinkled throughout and and you know it's easy for some bands to make hits and it's easy for some to make artistic innovations but to combine the two is rare especially on the level of the beach boys so it it is it is un- unprecedented uh, you talk about uh, writing and in Wild Honey, just writing the lyrics uh, and then presenting them. Is that mm-hmm. how it usually worked? Were you sitting with Brian? Did you hear a finished track and put music to it? Did Did he have a title? Did you come up with ideas, or is it a little bit of all of the above? It can be anything. On, on the song "Do It Again," which we re-recorded with Mark McGrath and John Stamos. Stamos played the drums. McGrath joined me on the vocals, and we did it on July fourth. Uh, the Capital Fourth on PBS debuted on that, and, and um, so that uh, was a case of I went to the beach and went on a little surf and safari with some high school friends of mine. This is maybe um, eight or nine years after graduated from high school, and we'd been very successful and everything, and and um, I went and literally got Brian out of the bedroom, went down to the beach, walked along, came back, sat down at the piano, and in about 20 minutes or a half hour, wrote the song Do It Again, which became a pretty good, decent-sized hit, and especially in England and Australia, it was was, um, pretty good in the U.S., but we were at the end of our capital workers contract, so I don't think we had tried that hard, but nonetheless, it was... The case of coming up with a concept, just like it came up with a concept for fun, 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 uh, as we were in a taxi leaving Salt, the Holiday Inn in Salt Lake City and driving to the airport. So sometimes it's a concept that takes the lead in the, in the creation of a song. In the case of Wild Honey, however, the guys were in the studio doing this great track, and I went, 
to the kitchen and opened the cupboard and there was this this jar of wild honey. See, Brian owned a health food store called the Radiant Radish at one point in time. So he had all this healthy stuff in his in his in his home and his in his kitchen. So um in that particular case the track was to was being developed and and then I wrote the words to to go with the track. And and it was inspired by uh, just kind of random way, just opening the cupboard and seeing a jar of wild honey and thinking, that's a great song about a girl who's really hot stuff and you and and there's no way you're not going to uh, go for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just a side track. I mean, you always read that Brian owned this health food store. I think it was on Sunset Boulevard, the Radiant Radish. Did he really work there and check people out of the cash register? I mean, is, was it at that level? Well, I think he he poked around there pretty pretty often, you know, and he had his cousin uh Steve Korthoff uh, kind of running the place. It didn't last forever because, you know, it was it was just an impulse kind of thing to start a, to have a health food store. But it, it gave me the idea that he was interested in health and, you know, uh, he, he made some, you know, not so great lifestyle choices along the way too, but but there's always been that, that um, you know, it with, with all of us, I think, in the group, there's been always been that that tendency to want to uh, do healthy things, you know, maybe with the, some of us didn't always live up to that, but um, you know, th- there's always been a, a, like with me, I've always been into my meditation and meditation and Ayurvedic, you know, lifestyle, which is really helpful and a lot of great herbs and, and uh, you know, dietary awareness and stuff. So I think that's always been part of living in the life we've led and, and living in California in particular. One interesting thing about the CD is there's some live tracks on here uh, from 1967 era. And it struck me that, you know, sometimes these uh, studio arrangements are pretty complex. There's more than five uh, musicians and more than five uh, voices. How How did it work that you would turn the record into something that could be presented live. Huh? Did, was there a lot of rehearsal? Was it just during sound checks? What was the, how did it happen? I don't know. Are you talking about some of the stuff from Hawaii and stuff or, or yeah. what? I'm yeah. I mean, sure. there's on the, on the new CD, there's stuff from Washington DC and Boston and, and there's the sort of fake Hawaii stuff this, from, uh, I think it was recorded. Oh, in, yeah. In, yeah. But just generally speaking, when you're trying to turn good vibrations into something to, to live or even, you know, just California girls, some of the more complex studio things, how did you guys do it? Well, you know, we actually had a theremin created that we could travel with on the road, and I actually played it for quite a while. It was um, made by the same people that made the Moog synthesizer, I believe, and it was a little tape thing that you would run your hand up, up uh, your finger up and down uh, to to create that sound. It's on the as close as we could get to the record, because that was a unique instrumentation, uh, the use of the theremin, which was invented by a Russian inventor <laughs> years ago. But only in, in 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 scary movies and in TV shows, eerie. It's such an eerie sound, but it complemented the track so well and so unique. So, but I, you know, in that particular instance to, to recreate good vibrations, you needed that sound. Nowadays, you can do it on a keyboard, the computer, and, and and you know, so much sampling goes on these days, and so you can replicate strings, horns, whatever you need to uh, sample and replicate for live performances. We have, um, I think, what, eight people on stage now. Uh, We have a a fellow who joins us to play saxophone and flute and various, various types of saxophones, depending on whether it's a lead on Kokomo or California Dreamin', or if it's the bass uh, baritone sax done, you know, like Help Me Rhonda and, and different songs. So, you know, the, the 
advancements in technology has helped us and many other groups replicate those sounds that uh, that involve multiple musicians in in studios and stuff like like um, we we did on the Pet Sounds album and so on. Uh, I want to remind folks that we're talking to Mike Love tonight in uh, uh, Ocean Grove at the Great Auditorium, uh, which is a beautiful old place, and I know that there's just a few tickets left. Folks should act now. And Monday and Tuesday, the 21st and 22nd, at the Ocean City Music Pier in Ocean City, New Jersey. And there's four shows, two shows each night. And I want to talk about that, but first I want to talk about your book, Good Vibrations, My Life as a Beach Boy. came out fairly recently, and uh, overall you... You really, I, I think, you really tried hard to sort of show the history of the Beach Boys, to show your life and balance it with your point of view, but also to, it seems like you almost went out of your way to be self-critical. Was, was that what you were, I mean, you, you're real honest in this book. Was it hard to do that? No, I don't think so. I mean, no, I don't think anybody's perfect. Would I have done certain things or not done certain things? That I that I did uh, along the way. I think it it's it makes it more interesting. The more the more honest you are, you know what I mean. More Absolutely. forthcoming you are. Yeah. And yeah. and there are things that are done to me that I would rather not have had had happen. But that's it's what happens. So I'm just relating uh, this my story uh, and my reality. Uh, in, in this thing called the Beach Boys, my life as the Beach Boy. So, but it wasn't, you know, what was interesting though and, and somewhat difficult is I did the, the, the recording. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a spoken a book where I spoke, I, I read it out. And that was tough. I mean, when, when I was talking about my cousin Carl contracting lung cancer and dying, that was hard to read. I mean, it's one thing in writing things out. It's a whole other things when you're trying to speak it out. So I got choked up and I had to, you know, compose myself, you know. Um, so there were things that were emotional. Like if my sister died of cancer, my loss of my grandparents, my parents who were, you know, loved ones. Those are things that affect all of us in life, you know, loss and so on, and um, disappointments, but also wonderful, you know, fantastic uh, experiences as well. So um, it's a mixed bag, you know, was, we all go through it. And, and could I have been a, a more attentive father? Yeah, because I was because I was traveling so much during uh, some of my children's upbringing and stuff. And so, you know, there, I don't think it does any good to have regrets, but I do think it has some value to be uh, forthcoming and honest uh, about yourself uh, to people. But then there's some experiences like being invited to go to, first of all, meeting Maharishi and having him teach me meditation, transcendental meditation. And then, being invited to go to India. And when I get there, the Beatles are, I didn't know the Beatles were going to be there. The Beatles and Donovan were there. <laughs> were there. And that was a, a life-changing experience. It was an amazing experience. And, and the fact that I've been meditating since December of 67 has been a um, lifesaver, actually. And uh, very, very grateful for that 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 experience and that knowledge and, and on a daily basis I take advantage of that so that that is um, a high point in in terms of you know something that's really been a, a tremendous help for me to get through all the ups and downs that you might experience I mean you know my cousin Dennis having a roommate named Charles Manson you know that was that wasn't so swell and a lot of people are fascinated by that. And I only met the guy once, but my cousin Dennis wanted us to join his family. So, but uh, fortunately, I learned meditation, and I, I <laughs> uh, didn't have any thoughts whatsoever joining that that group at that time. But it was a notorious time, and I do talk about it a little bit in the book because that's something you know horrible that happened back in. And at that time. 
Yeah, I think the book definitely shows the sort of ups and downs. And I think, lucky for you, there have been many, many ups. And and the downs, uh, you always figured a way to get out of. I mean, some of the, the stuff that was you know, that you don't always hear about, uh, was like, you talk about your dad's chop sessions and how, uh, he wasn't a real emotional guy. And it's, and I found that sort of interesting because you, like you just said, your life has been this kind of search for enlightenment and, and positivity and your mission almost to spread positivity through the, the band. And like you said earlier, you've kind of got to learn from your own history, but I assume you're a, a better dad than that, right? Oh yeah, no. You learn, you live, and you learn. And I, I, you know, my kids, my, my son, Christian, has been a band member in the past, but and um, he's been living in Santa Barbara, California, where uh, he grew up for years, and loves the beach volleyball scene. He's, he lives the life we sang about. <laughs> so um, you know, and we we've been all over the world with 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 our kids, you know, and, and, and so, so it's, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a interesting life. That's for sure. But you know, the, the main thing about it is, is the positivity that, that, that our music is given to so many millions of people. That is the, the, the real, real purposeful thing about the beach boys. I think. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, one thing that I loved in, in the book was kind of the talk of those very early days where you guys are a little bit famous. You've been kicked out of your house. Your mom literally threw everything of yours out the window, but folks can read the whole story. You're kind of working in a gas station, and the time between that and when you guys blow up, where you're a little bit famous, you're playing in, like, Pandora's Box, and a very sweet time for the band. I mean, do you remember those days crystal clear? It was very exciting. Absolutely. Very exciting. When we were playing Pandora's Box, we I think they gave us about 10 weekends that we would play there and, and they would call the cops on us because we were so loud (laughs) and um, we did a lot of instrumentals, but our first song surfing uh, was, was a hit locally in California and then surfing safari came along and that was when things really started going. And then the next, that was 62 and 63 was surfing USA. So by the time we got to surfing USA, we were, significantly famous, you know, on, and, and getting lots of airplay. And so, um, you know, the flip side of the single record surfing safari was 409 a song about a car that my cousin Dennis had. And then surfing USA, the flip side was shut down. So we had double sided hits there in the early to mid sixties. And that, that really gave us a huge boost that, that I mean, even today, those songs that we play in concert and, and people love them. And, yeah. and not only just the people that heard them first back in the sixties, but successive generations. And that's the staying power of the beach boys music, which is pretty phenomenal. One of the crazy things that you can look up in the book is this crazy pace that you guys were on of the touring, and it is mostly in the back of station wagons and things, and then making two or three LPs a year. It really was frenetic. I mean, just a crazy pace for young boys. I mean, David and and Carl were 12 or 13 or 14, right? They were super young. You were kids. Yeah, they they were. Carl was the youngest. Uh, and so the youngest Wilson brother, and then, then there's Dennis and then Brian. And then myself, I was the oldest. I was 21 when we signed with Capitol records in 1962. So yeah. And it was, but it was fun and exciting too, you know, uh, but it wasn't fancy. Like you say, the station wagon with the U-Haul with the, and we had set up and break down our equipment and a cousin would come along and, and help us. And they, he was our first roadie. But now we have a wonderful, excellent crew that sets everything up, and the sound systems are so much better, and they yeah. check the uh, the equipment is so much better, and we we travel very comfortably, and and so um, yeah, we lived all that you know stuff in the early '60s, but now it's a whole different kind of process, and I think the audience uh, gets a lot better uh, experience these days. Yeah, and also you guys incorporate some uh, visuals in your show too. There's some videos and pictures and stuff, so it's there's more than there's a whole show going on. Uh, one of the things in the book that, and I don't want you to 
we don't have to recount this whole thing, but I want you to talk about it just a little bit, is Murray Wilson, who is such a larger-than-life character in the history of the Beach Boys, and it's hard to know what's real, but you sort of paint this picture of this kind of fairly sadistic guy, frustrated artist, alcoholic, made terrible, absolutely terrible business decisions. But again, you do a pretty good job of showing some balance, uh, you know, that maybe you, the Beach Boys wouldn't have existed, really, as we know them, without Murray. Well, he, Murray did a great job in promotion. He was a really good promotion person. He spent hours and hours on the phone uh, talking to radio stations and making deals for us to do concerts uh, um, at, you know, sponsored by the local radio stations. And, and the DJs made money from us by doing these concerts. It wasn't payola directly, for, uh, but it was a way to ingratiate ourselves with with the radio stations uh, up and down the coast of California and all around, you know, wherever we could drive to within a few hours. And we, we got a tremendous amount of support from radio there for And then of course, because of the success of the records, uh, which caught on, we were invited to go many on many other tours and many other parts of the country and, and around the world as well. So, so he was instrumental in that, but he was also, um, you know, really a bully. He was not fun to have around, and so Brian and I fired him as our manager. And to get even with me, he cheated me and didn't. He administrated the publishing. He was the only one person who knew what publishing and writers was all about, and so he he literally cheated me on things like you know a lot of songs, Surfing USA, for instance, California Girls. I get around. My my name, even though I wrote all the words, the girls, my name didn't appear on the record. So it gave a disproportionate or untrue picture of who actually created those songs. And that was not a happy thing. But I I dealt with it because you know, I had to. And I dealt with it in the book, which, by the way, there's a paperback coming out on September 12th oh, uh, of uh, Good Vibrations, My Life's a Beach Boy. Yeah. So a lot more affordable, I think. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot. We, we could talk for hours and hours, and I know that you've got to go. So the book, like I said, book, super interesting, super honest, and covers you know everything that I think folks would would have questions about. Uh, you do a, How many shows a year do you guys do now? Well, in 2015, we did 172 performances, <clears throat> and uh, Four of them were in Ocean City, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a and, lot. It's a lot, a lot of shows. Why do you do yeah, it? Yeah, it is. You don't need the money. What is, why? Well, supply and demand, really. I mean, if there are no demand, there was no demand for the Beach Boys music, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do it. It's simple as that. But, I mean, we just did seven weeks in Europe uh, in between May and June, between England, Ireland, Scotland, and then France, Belgium, Holland, several Germany dates, Austria, Switzerland. You know, uh, we ended up in Italy and flew back to the U.S. to do July 4th in the Cap- Capital 4th on PBS, where we did Do, do It Again with McGrath and Stamos. So, <clears throat> you know, there's just... Um, there's just... The uh, year, there seemed to be... Uh, more and more uh, places that, that want to have the Beach Boys come and perform. So, big places, small places, you know, uh, not only in the U.S., but around the world. So it's it's a pretty pretty awesome thing to, to, when you think about it. It's, it's pretty great that five decades after you started, people still want to hear you. No, it's, it's unbel- and it's unbelievable to see 10,000 people all singing along to a song or something. And I've seen your band a million times, and it really is, you know, there, it's, 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 it's amazing just to see that reaction. And like you said, it's multi-generational. Uh, 33 songs in the top 40, uh, you know, t- thousands of songs. Do you have one you, we should play now, something that maybe blew your mind or something that you can't believe now that you were a part of? Well, of course, we've spoken of Good Vibrations many times, and that was an incredible song. Um, but Kokomo was said to be the biggest single we ever had. And that was played on full house. And I think because of being on full house with our friend, John Stamos, it's 
we have had successive generations. I mean, lots of kids recognize this from, and lots of people sing along. That's one of the biggest sing along records that we we've ever done as Kokomo. So I would I would love to hear that. I will play Coco. It's funny, I just read Papa John's book, uh, and he talks about writing the sort of first version of that song, and you can go out and hear that song, mm-hmm. and, and by contrasting the two songs, you really see what Mike Love brought to that song, which is basically all the hooks, you know? Your version is so much mm-hmm. more, more hooky, and I think it's a great illustration of, of what you do. Well, thank you. Yeah, and it's true. that I listen to the melody and, and the lyrics, and of uh, what John Phillips had, and I said, yeah, that's a very beautiful melody. I love it, but it doesn't groove. And so I came up with Aruba, Jamaica, ooh, I want to take you, that part of it. And and Terry Melcher came up with, ooh, I want to take you down to Kokomo. So it was a true collaboration. And, um, you know, that was, that was an amazingly successful song. Yeah, a huge, huge, huge number one hit. I think you guys have four number one hits. Uh, Mike Love, the book is called Good Vibrations. My Life is a Beach Boy. It's coming out in paperback, we just learned. Tonight in Ocean Grove at the Great Auditorium in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. Beautiful old place. And then four shows, Monday and Tuesday, the 21st and 22nd, at the Ocean City Music Pier. And that is literally half of the venue is over the water. It's a great place to go uh, see a show and maybe go swimming and hang out and spend the day uh, and uh, check out MikeLove.com for information about all of this stuff. Uh, Mike, it's been a pleasure, and I would love to do it again uh, with you sometime totally just scratching the surface here. But I appreciate I know you're busy, and I, I want to thank you for uh, taking time for us. And thank you for having me on your, your show, and, and uh, appreciate it very much, and we'll see you in Jersey. Go down the 